I want to encourage you to take your Bibles, please, and turn to the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke chapter 18. The title of this morning's message is really a question, God Mercy. Luke chapter 18, verse 35. Jesus is passing through Jericho. And in verse 35 we read, As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth, is passing by, and he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. I can't think of anything more applicable to where most of us live than this word mercy. Mercy is something that every one of us needs. Every person you know needs mercy. And if you know the Lord, you have received mercy. And you are in a position to give to every person you know what they need and what so few people have. All around us are people who have a history They have a present set of circumstances, and most of the time, what they need from you and me the most first is an approach that involves mercy. The the pain that you feel when you've messed up, if someone's coming to speak to that issue in your life, they need to sense and experience mercy. When you're already afraid or anxious or hurting because of something that's going wrong in your life. You need people around you who will care and who have compassion and who will show mercy. When you and I go for extended periods of time without mercy, when we're not around people who give mercy or who shower mercy or who exhibit the mercy of Christ, our soul gets incredibly barren and dry. And so I have a picture on the screen that I want you to see. It's a picture of the Atacama Desert, which is in Chile, in South America. And this is typically what you and I think of when we think of a desert, isn't it? Barren, dry, and no life. And this is a world without mercy. This is a heart without mercy. And it's thirsty, and it needs moisture, and it can't live without it. If we understand scripture properly this is every human heart before Christ we we are barren we have no life we are desperately needy we need 
the kind of watering that can only come from the grace of God. Before God sent Jesus, he loved you. Before God sent Jesus, he had mercy on you. Sending Jesus was an expression of that mercy. Sending Jesus was an expression of his love, but he already loved you. He already had mercy. The Bible tells us his mercies are new every morning. I like that. When an infinite, all-wise, all-powerful God re-ups on mercy every morning, how can I do less? I need to experience that mercy, and I need to share that mercy. So what happens when someone experiences mercy? Well, the barren desert becomes something in bloom. And that's the same desert after it's been watered in uh, the seasonal rains. And, And that's what happens to the human soul when they encounter the mercy of God and often the mercy of other Christians and other people. I want us to take up this question this morning. How am I responding to the hurting persons around me? I want you to think for a moment of someone you know personally who is hurting. How are you responding to that hurt and to that pain. There are two basic ways that you and I can respond. And they're extremely different. First of all, I can ask the question, am I responding in a mercy-less manner? Am I mercy-less? We actually have a word in our English language, merciless. They were merciless in their attack. They were merciless in their words. They were merciless in their treatment. And so what does that mean? It means there's no mercy. (laughs) Mercy less. Am I mercy less? In verse 39, it says, And those who were in the front, they were the ones walking with Jesus. They were watching Jesus come by. Those who were in the front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And God bless him, he didn't shut up. But the people around him didn't want to hear his cry. The people around him didn't want to hear his pain. And they were telling him to be quiet. This week, um, myself and Dustin and some others uh, went to a conference that was hosted by one of the agencies of our denomination, Southern Baptist Convention, in Memphis. And it was marking the 50th anniversary, the assassination of Martin Luther King in Memphis, Tennessee. It was a remarkable time. We were just there with two or 3,000 of our closest friends. And um, in downtown Memphis, security was high. You would have thought on that first, um, that first day that we were all persons of incredible importance. I got off the elevator. There were six guys there with full SWAT gear on. And I wasn't sure if I should feel safe or uh, guilty uh, in that moment. I mean, it was, it was an awesome time. And we heard a lot of statements. We heard a lot of feelings expressed. We heard a lot of, a lot of pain. In the very last uh, message or speech that Martin Luther King gave on April 3rd, 1968, he, in the course of giving that speech in, in Memphis, Tennessee, he, he referred to the story of the Good Samaritan. And in that story, those of you who are Bible scholars, you'll remember that there was a man, unidentified, you really don't know his nationality, his ethnicity, but there was a man who was, who was beaten and robbed and left in a ditch. And a Levite went by, and a priest went by. They saw the man, they were aware of his condition, but they didn't do anything. But then a Samaritan came by. And Martin Luther King doesn't 
refer to this, but the Samaritan in that culture was on the other side of a racial divide. He was a different ethnicity. He was a minority. He was certainly not in a position of power or strength. And he walks by and he sees this man. And he alone goes and and makes the sacrifice, does what is necessary to show mercy to the man in the ditch. Now, listen to these words. Martin Luther King, April 3rd, 1968. Just listen to what he says. And you know it's possible that the priest and the Levite looked over that man on the ground and wondered if the robbers were still around. Or it's possible that they felt that the man on the ground was merely faking and he was acting like he had been robbed and hurt in order to seize them over there, lure them there for quick and easy seizure. And so the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the Good Samaritan came by and he reversed the question. If if I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? See, that's the difference that mercy makes. Now, why is it that sometimes we simply don't show mercy? What is the problem with a merciless person? The issue in the Scripture always goes to the heart. There's a problem in the heart. There are obstacles in the heart. And so I want to share with you briefly five heart-level barriers to mercy. What is it that clogs up our heart and keeps us from showing mercy to others? Well, the first one that came to mind was my agenda. I have things to do. I'm on a mission in life. I have a schedule to keep, people to see, things to do. Um, I jokingly say to the little kids in my house when they're grown up, hey, little one, I'm a grown man. I got things to do. And that's usually before I just collapsed and kept playing with them. But my agenda, what, what am I doing? And we take our agenda and we put it up against what someone else is feeling or needing, and we weigh them out and we say, my agenda is more important. And whenever that happens, it becomes a roadblock to mercy in our heart. Second thing, my friendship circle. My friendship circle. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. Sometimes I look at the, the people in need, and, and I'm not responsive to them, and I don't feel an obligation to them, and I don't feel mercy towards them, basically because I take care of the people closest to me. I take care of the people in my friendship circle, the people in my family, my people, my posse. I take care of those people. But I'm not as worried about people who aren't part of my group. And as you can imagine, that's always painful. And instead of showing mercy, sometimes we create a larger need for mercy in the hearts of others. Like, um, like the kid who doesn't ever get picked on the playground to be on the, on the team. Uh, they get left behind. They get left out. And so the friendship circle can become a barrier in our heart to mercy. Third barrier is my comfort zone. I'm just not comfortable dealing with that kind of a problem, dealing with that kind of a person. We are too different. We are not the same. And so for me to show mercy in that situation means I have to step out of my comfort zone in order to do it. I believe every church should have a Judy in it. Years ago in a church I was in, we had a lady in that church. She was a very special person. She was married. Her name was Judy. Judy was an unusual person. Many people would say she was weird. 
She could tell me. She had a mental capacity just different from the rest of the world. She could tell me. If I used an illustration about Judy earlier in my ministry at Wynn Baptist Church, which I have, she could tell me the date I preached the sermon, what the sermon was about, the text I used, and that, Pastor, you've already used that illustration before. I mean, down to the date, down to the text, she had a kind of memory. I, have a, I tell people I have a memory like a steel trap. Stuff gets in, I can't get it out again. But she really could recall the things that, that happened to her. So she was, she was just different. When her mind zeroed in on something, it zeroed in on one thing. And, and that's all she could think about. If I ran into Judy at the store, she might not recognize me because I wasn't in the auditorium of the church. She just was wired differently. One Sunday evening, we had, uh, we had a lot of single adults in that particular congregation. And she was sitting in the back with some sing single adults. And um, she, had, she had been raised in a Jewish background, so she was a converted uh, Jewish person to come to know Jesus. She was sitting back there, and, um, and she was sitting in the middle of one of the back rows. And there were people sitting on either side of her. And we had a, a visitor that night, unusual, but we had a visitor that night in the church sitting up near the front. And they started coughing. <coughs> you know, while the Bible study is going on. They were coughing. Obviously, they had a problem. Judy's sitting in the back, and she hears that person coughing, and she is a compassionate person. She wants to show mercy. She really does. And she looks. She hears that person coughing. She looks to the left, and that person knows what she's thinking. And that person sitting to her left will not let her out. <laughs> she looks to her right, and that person sitting to her right knows she wants out. They will not let her out. They know Judy. I almost said her last name. They know Judy. And, and so that person's still coughing, like some of y'all are kind of coughing. Doesn't bother me. It's all right. But, but they're, they're coughing. And she can't handle it. She's got to help this person. She gets down on her knees and commando crawls from the back of the auditorium all the way up. She comes up behind, behind that guest, and her hand is like this. She's going to whack him on the back. She's going to help them out. That person saw her upraised hand and stifled the next call. <laughs> and never came back to our church. Every church needs a Judy. Every church needs a Judy. Judy. Judy wanted to show mercy, but Judy also needed mercy. And sometimes when people are that different from us, we are stepping out of our comfort zone to minister to those individuals. And if we're not willing to step out of that comfort zone, it becomes an obstacle to showing mercy. And then the fifth one, uh, the fourth one are my price tags. My price tags. We put different price tags on people. When I first came here, uh, almost five years ago now, I preached a sermon, and in it I talked about how we value one another. We are called as Christians to honor one another highly. And that word honor means to establish the value or worth of something. And to illustrate that, I said, everybody got a price tag that morning, and, and you wrote down what you're worth. And that's what you and I do. We assign value to people. And when we see someone is more valuable or more worthy, we treat them differently. We'll show them mercy. We'll invest in them. We'll bless them. But if that other person we see, we gave them a lower price tag, we don't invest in them. 
And so sometimes my price tags can be a problem. Now the truth is, every person's price tag is the same. You were bought with a price. The blood of Jesus was the price placed on your life. And every person you know, they're worth the same thing in the eyes of God. They're worth the life of his son. But you and I don't tend to operate that way. We have different price tags. Uh, Don Mumal, he's passed away now, but he was the pastor of the Bel Air Presbyterian Church in Los Angeles years ago. Ronald Reagan, President of the United States, was a member of that Presbyterian Church. And when he was governor of the California, he would periodically go back to Los Angeles. He would visit his home church. He would even visit there a time or two when he was president. When he would come in to the church, uh, Secret Service would come in ahead of him, or his, his um, at the time as governor, his state police uh, guard, would come in and would come down front, and if the seats were already taken down front, he would ask some people to move when he would visit someplace. And Pastor Mumal, to his credit, saw what was happening. And he and Ronald Reagan were friends. They were friends to the days that they, they passed away. They were, they were good friends. Mumal had played football. Reagan and he loved each other. But when he saw what that guy was doing, he went down. He stopped that security person. He said, look, we don't do that here. And Ronald Reagan sat in the back that day. We, don't, we need to be careful that our price tags, the way we value people, doesn't become an obstacle to showing mercy. The fifth obstacle in the heart is my past. My past. Sometimes people have hurt us so deeply that I am making everybody pay for what somebody else did. And I am unable to give mercy because of the things that have been done to me. And until I'm able to forgive, until I'm able to show mercy to those who wronged me, until I'm able to let that go, that past can become an obstacle in my own heart and in my own life. So how do I respond to hurting people? I can be merciless. And, and, and dear ones, it doesn't matter whether you're a pastor or a deacon or Sunday school teacher. We all have days and moments where for whatever reason we don't show mercy. And we need to be careful that when we realize what we're doing that we go and look at our heart. Is there an obstacle in my heart that I need to deal with? There's a second option. Am I merciless? The second one is this. Am I merciful? And again, we have a word for that, merciful. But it means mercy full. Am I full of mercy? In verse 38, this man, he cried out. Now listen to what he says. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David. He says it a second time. Have mercy on me. Now what was the man asking for? Mercy. Mercy. Now this word in scripture is a, is a beautiful word. It's, it's a powerful word. If you ever are so inclined, I encourage you to get your Bible out, take your, your little concordance in the back, and just look up the verses with the word mercy. And I think you'll be blessed by how much the Bible has to say about mercy. God gives you mercy before he gives you anything else. It's the first thing God gives in your salvation. And so this man asked for mercy. Now, now we know he's going to ask for healing also. He wants to be able to see. So he's asking for two things ultimately in this passage. He's asking for mercy. He's asking for his sight. But what does he start with? He says, the first thing I need is mercy. 
I need someone who's going to care for me. I need someone who's going to have compassion on me. And, and he cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Someone who would care. So as we look at the rest of this passage, I want to see what mercy does. Jesus personifies mercy. And I want us to look carefully at what Jesus does in this moment. Because if he is the personification of mercy, he is illustrating for us the kind of life that he wants to produce in you and me when he comes to live inside. Every person here that knows Jesus, you need to know that Jesus has a plan for your life. And sometimes that plan is very different than your plan. Jesus wants to change you. He wants to mold you. He wants to make you a man or woman of faith. He wants to change your character. He wants to live his life through you. And if he is merciful, guess what he wants to produce in you and me? Mercy. He wants to produce mercy in us. So what does mercy do? I want to share with you five acts of a merciful person. When Jesus lives in us and has his way with us, these are the five things that you can expect to happen. Number one, mercy hears the cries. Mercy hears the cries. Verse 39, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now, Jesus heard the cry. The rest of the crowd said, be quiet. Leave him alone. Uh, We're not having mercy on you. But Jesus heard the cry. Now, what was it about this man's cry that captured the attention of Jesus? Well, there's several things. He was shouting for one thing. Uh, He made himself heard. And so there was shouting, but in that there was hurt and pain. Son of David, have mercy on me. Hurt and pain. Now what's interesting about this this passage, in Luke, we don't know the man's name. In Mark's gospel, when he tells the story, he tells us his name is Bartimaeus. Uh, That means son of Timaeus. And so this is, we can call him Bart, I'm not going to do that. But blindness had affected Bartimaeus' social relationships It had set him apart from others. This blindness had basically separated him from the world of people. And so there was hurt and pain in his cry. He was determined. He was shameless. He was persistent. And Jesus was always impressed with that. When someone comes to him and cries out to him in prayer, and they are persistent and shameless and bold like this man was, that always captures the heart of Jesus. He saw the faith in this man. He heard the faith in him. Son of David, have mercy on me. He's calling Jesus because he knows Jesus can do something. He calls him son of David. This is the term for the Messiah. He knows that this is the one who can change his life. And Jesus heard his focus, not just his faith. He's not asking for money. He's not begging Jesus for money. Uh, Can you spare a dollar? He's asking Jesus for the only thing Jesus can give him. Only Jesus can give him healing. Only Jesus can give him the mercy that he seeks. So he wants what only Jesus can do. So that's the first thing mercy does. It hears the cries. Part of the problem in the age that you and I live in is we hear crying every time we turn on the television. We see pain and suffering every time we open a newspaper. Everywhere we turn, we are bombarded with images of famines and war and death and hostility and terrorist acts and, and shootings and abuse and horrible stories. We are bombarded with that every day. 
And instead of feeling anything in the face of that, probably as much as anything is a, is a protective measure because you and I don't have enough compassion to respond to all of those things. We just don't. But what we don't want to happen is what typically happens is we become insensitive to pain and hurt. It enables us to see someone when we do get up close. It enables us to see someone who's hurting and walk right past them and not think about it. When someone is close in our church family, in your Bible study group in Wynn, Arkansas, and they are hurting and they're in trouble, it enables us to walk past it. Jesus heard the cry. Do we hear the cries? What God wants to accomplish through Wynn Baptist Church and through our Bible study groups, what he wants to accomplish, what he intends to accomplish many times is putting needs right in front of us and saying, now go get them. And I believe that when he begins to work and bring the kind of life to us that we want as a congregation, that we want as a church family, it's going to start as we begin to hear the needs that are around us. Secondly, what mercy does. Not only hears the cries, but makes time. Makes time. Verse 40, it says, and Jesus stopped. If that's in your Bible, I would underline it and circle it. Jesus stopped. The rest of the crowd didn't stop. But Jesus stopped. That is a huge statement. To me, that's the core of the, of the story. Will we stop the minister? Mercy is never convenient. I've got to stop what I'm doing. I've got to stop my forward movement. I've got to stop the direction I'm headed in. I've got to stop what I'm doing in that moment. I've got to lay aside my plans for that day or that month or that year. Jesus stopped. Number three. Mercy gets close. Mercy gets close. In verse 40 it says, And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him. He didn't say, What can I do for you? No, he said, Get him over here. Get him over here. And, and when he got close, then he spoke to him. He got close. You and I can't love people from a distance. And you've heard me say it, and I'm going to keep saying it. But if you're not plugged into a Bible study group in our church family, you are not getting all that God intends for you to have from this church. And you cannot love people from a distance. What happens in here is very important. It's very much a part of the life of this church family. It is that moment where we come together and together we praise the Lord, we worship the Lord, we listen to his word, we come together as a church family, but we're really at a distance in here. There's so many things that God calls us to do it as a church in terms of ministry and discipleship and, and evangelism and, and caring for people. It does not happen here, but it can happen in a Bible study group, in a small group. And so I would encourage you to go find that place. Get plugged into that group and love those people and let them love you. He gets close. Number four, mercy seeks to understand. Mercy seeks to understand. Verse 40, and when he came near, listen to this, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. Well, to me, that's an amazing question. 
If somebody brings a blind guy to me, I don't know that I would ask, what do you want me to do for you? It seems obvious. But before Jesus could change the man's life, he wanted to hear the man's heart. And so he asked a question. One of the best ways you can minister to some people is to ask questions and listen. Ask questions and listen. Someone around here that's a puzzle to you, you don't understand them, you don't know why they act the way they act, you don't know why they do what they do, ask questions and listen. Jesus did that. He sought to understand the man. He asked what he wants, an amazing request. But Jesus searches out the man's heart before he does anything else. Some of the greatest problems we have in our world today, in our society today, is happening because we're not asking questions. We're laying blame and attacking. And we're not listening. And I'm, I'm telling you, what we listen to in our media doesn't help. It's designed to entertain, and it's made attacking and blaming an, a, an entertainment. That's fine if you want to watch that and hear that. But when you come to personal relationships, that's not the way to live. And so he seeks to understand. He says, what do you want me to do for you? And he listens to the man. And then the fifth thing mercy does is this. Mercy brings the need to Jesus. And so I'm going to step back because Jesus personifies mercy. But, but what you and I do next, the next thing that happens is that we've got to bring those needs to, to, to Jesus. Because there are things that are way beyond my ability. Look at verse 40. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. So what did the disciples have to do? All the disciples had to do was go and get this guy and bring him to Jesus. I don't know a simpler picture of evangelism. I don't know a simpler picture of what discipleship is. I don't know a simpler picture of what ministry is, is bringing people into contact with Jesus. And I become his hands, yes. I become his feet, yes. I become his heart, yes. But ultimately, in my mind, my, the, the mental picture I have in terms of ministry is bringing someone to Jesus. When you counsel someone, what do you should, should you be doing? Jesus, help me. Remember my favorite prayer? Jesus, help me. I can't depend on my resources. I can't depend on my abilities. I can't depend on my training or my, my degrees or schooling or any of those things. We have to depend. We depend way too much in those things, and we have professionalized ministry and thought that only the preacher can do that, only the pastors can do that, only the trained people and schooled people can do that. And there's a Hebrew word for that posture, baloney. Pastors, if anything, are supposed to equip the saints for the work of ministry, not do all the ministry. And so if I'm doing all the ministry, I'm not doing my job. In too many churches, it's the other way around. They think if you're not doing all the ministry, you're not doing your job. What's our task? Our task is to bring people to Jesus and lead them with Jesus. And do what he says to do 
Next. So they stopped and they commanded him to be brought to him. Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. Verse 42. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight. So Jesus had the people walking with him do one thing. Now, do we want to walk with Jesus? Do we want to walk with Jesus? Okay. Jesus said to the people walking with him, there's only one thing I want you to do. Bring him to me. Got that? I like ministry that's simple. And if I want to minister to somebody, I may not have a clue. I may feel weak. I may feel ignorant. I may feel helpless. I may feel inadequate. But if I can get him to Jesus, he can take care of him. So they said, one thing, Jesus says to him, one thing, bring this man who is crying out and who is hurting to me. You can have mercy. You can hear and make time and get close and seek to understand, but then what? Some of the needs that you encounter are going to be far greater than your capacity to meet them. Jesus can minister in ways that you and I can't. You can't, but he can. Often, when I don't know what else to say, and if I've said this to you, I'm exposing my heart to you. But there are times when I get into ministry situations, I really don't know what that person needs or what they want me to do next, and I have prayed, help me, Jesus. And he hasn't filled in the blanks for me either. And the need that I'm facing is so overwhelming, so beyond my ability, so beyond my capacity. But I can speak with absolute authority and look a person in the eye and say this with absolute faith and absolute trust. Jesus has a way for you through this and he will walk with you through it. I don't know exactly what it is. I don't have all the answers, but Jesus has a way for you through this. And you can trust him. When Jesus saw the man's faith, he said, recover your sight. When faith was birthed in that man, the ministry was complete. So the key element is mercy or compassion. Mercy. Do you have it? Do you need it? In that same church, we didn't just have a Judy, we had a garland. And um, Garland was a well-intentioned gentleman, member of our church. One day some kids were playing in the basement of the church, throwing, throwing around a hard rubber ball downstairs in the church. And one of the kids threw the ball at one of the other kids and it missed him and hit the, hit the sheetrock. We thought it was sheetrock and left a crater in the sheetrock downstairs. About, about that big around, not, not my hands, just about that big around, okay? Two or three inches across. Crater in the sheetrock. Garland shows up on Monday morning, got his coveralls on. For a living, he sold insurance. They came in, had his coveralls on, had a toolbox with him. He said, I'm gonna fix the hole downstairs. I said, well, thank you, Garland. Man, I appreciate that. He goes downstairs. I'm thinking he's going to get some 
He's going to float that thing. He's going to paint it. He's going to fill in putty in that hole. He's going to paint it. It's going to look really nice. It's going to be good as new. About, about an hour and a half later, Garland comes up the stairs, knocks on my door at my office. I said, hey, Garland. He said, and he's covered with white powder. He says, Don, I've done all I can do. See you later. And he leaves. Well, I'm curious. I walk down the stairs, and that little, little crater has become a hole about three foot in diameter. We just backed a couch up to it because we couldn't fix it right away. It covered most of the hole. We even named the hole. We called it Garland's Hole. <laughs> it had little slats, and it was a, it was a plaster and slat construction. It was an old Dutch Reformed building we had, were using as a church, and, and, and they had rotted, and and so when he got in there, he thought, well, you know, I'm going to take out the rotten stuff and replace it. And he gets in there, and, it, and it's all rotten. And he just keeps chipping away at it, chipping away at it, and suddenly he's got this big hole. Now, what did Garland need when he had made a big mess? Mercy! And we gave him mercy. We still called it Garland's Hole. But we gave him Mercy. Some of you sitting here this morning, you feel like your life is bigger than Garland's Hole. You have messed up. You have hurt some people. You have said things you wish you could take back. You have done things that you wish had never crossed your mind. You wish you could just roll it back, you know, just have a do-over and start all over again. And you have made a mess of your life. And you think the people sitting here are perfect you think the people sitting around you have never messed up? The Bible says, dear one, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us has made a hole bigger than garland with our life. Every one of us has messed up. Every one of us needs the mercy of God. Do you know his mercy? Have you experienced his forgiveness? The Bible says that when you turn to him, and you ask his forgiveness, you put your trust in Christ to forgive you, God forgives you. Why? Because he's not a just God? Because he just looks the other way and winks at the messes that you and I have made? No. Because he takes the entire mess that we've created and he puts it on Jesus and the justice of God killed Jesus Christ on the cross. And Jesus took your place and he died for your sin. That's why God can forgive you. Because your sins are moved from you to Jesus. And this morning, if you'll put your trust in Christ to save you, to change your life, he will not only carry away your sins, he'll come live inside you, and he will cause you to experience mercy, and you will become a merciful person. He will change you and cause you to be more and more like him and less and less like yourself.